Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me, every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Richard Hurwitz is the author of In the Garden of the Righteous, The Heroes Who Risked Their Lives to Save Jews During the Holocaust. Richard is a writer, investor, and the publisher of the Octavian Report, The Magazine of Ideas. He is the chief executive officer of Octavian & Company LLC, an investment firm. Richard's writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Times of London, the LA Times, Time, the Daily Beast, the Boston Globe, USA Today, CNBC, the Weekly Standard History Today— and the Jerusalem Post. His book on Holocaust Rescuers, 
was published by HarperCollins. Previously, Richard was the founder and chief investment officer of Octavian Advisors, an international special situations and distressed investment fund which managed approximately $1.4 billion and which was sold to TPG, the private equity firm. The fund was named one of the top large global hedge funds by Bloomberg and successfully invested in over 50 countries on five continents. Prior to founding Octavian, Richard was a partner at Halcyon Asset Management, a multi-billion dollar hedge fund. He previously served as a member of the board of directors of EI Tower Spa, the Italian broadcast towers company, Head Envy, the Austrian sporting goods business, and of Octavian Maritime, a cargo shipping concern where he was chairman. He also served as a senior advisor to TPG Sixth Street Partners. Richard serves on the governing board of the Yale University Art Gallery and is a member of the Bretton Woods Committee and a life member on the Council of Foreign Relations. He was a co-founder and president of the Renew Democracy Initiative, an organization dedicated to defending liberal democracy. He received his BA in history from Yale University, graduating in three years magna cum laude and with distinction, and was elected to Phi Beta Kappa and Phi Alpha Theta. He earned a JD from Columbia University School of Law, where he was a Harlan Fisk Stone Scholar and the Editor-in-Chief of the Columbia VLA Journal of Law and the Arts. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for coming on Moms Don't Time to Read Books to discuss In the Garden of the Righteous, the heroes who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. Thank you for having me. I was just saying, this is such a, a really important time to be discussing this book. I think a lot of people are thinking about what are their friends doing? What would they do? Like, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. It's it's incredibly timely. Why don't you tell listeners what your book is about? Sure. So the book, it tells 10 stories of people during World War II, uh, all non-Jewish people. Oh, well, sorry. Uh, there, there are 10 stories. Some of them are group rescue. So there's more than 10 individuals, but it's people, non-Jews who rescued Jews from and others from the Nazis. And many of them have been recognized as righteous among the nations, even though a lot of them, when I opened the book with the story of Aristides de Souza Mendes, who saved 30,000 people, he's the largest single rescue in the, in the in the Holocaust by an individual, most of them are completely unknown. Most rescuers are unknown other than Oscar Schindler and 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 and, and Raul Wallenberg and, and and maybe the Danes. So so it's a story and it's an undercovered area, but it's basically 10 stories of righteous rescuers. And then I try to talk a little bit about, you know, why this happened and what drove people to do it and what drove most people not not to do it. Well, you write in such a visual way. All the scenes, like you open with the leaflets sort of fluttering down from a of a high staircase, and you know, a not good result after that. How did you you wrote you also explain in the book, but tell listeners where this interest came from for you, particularly, you know, your Holocaust Museum experience and all of that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I I first got interested in rescue when the Holocaust Museum opened in Washington, and I was in college. So don't. Google the date because then you can find out how old I am. But I went down with my family. We're not Holocaust survivors. Um, so so we're we've been here for a long time, but like a lot of Jews, we went down to see the the museum. And if any anybody who's been there knows it's a very, very tough experience. And as I've talked about the book, actually, even with a lot of people who are not Jewish and general audiences, everyone has that experience. And people remember this pile of shoes that was is there that many of them are in children's sizes. So it's it's a very, you know, I think intentionally, you know, um tough, tough experience. And at the end, there was an exhibit about rescue about rescuers. And there was one group called the White Rose who were young, mostly medical students, although the the two main drivers were a medical student, his younger sister, who was actually a college student. This is Hans and Sophie Scholl, who are now 
you know, household names in Germany, but at the time they were, they, they were just medicals. They were just students. And I gravitated also to a picture of one of their comrades who I remember still, it's on the cover of my book has a, was a young guy with a pipe and they, they were all around my age at, at the time. And their story was that they basically tried to foment an uprising against the Nazis. And they did that in part by circulating leaflets all over the university, university of Munich and then other universities. And they talked about how this is, you know, not our Germany. And they actually, the guy that I saw the picture of, um, he wrote the second leaflet, which is one of the first documents to actually mention the Holocaust. And he said, there's already been 300,000 Jews killed in a bestial manner. And so they, they did this for, for about a year. And then, as you mentioned, um, they were distributing leaflets at the university of Munich and Sophie, the, the, the young girl, um, had a bunch of extra in her, in her, um, pocketbook and kind of like threw them down this atrium and the maintenance man who was an ardent Nazi saw them lock the door. The Gestapo came, they were put on summary trial and executed within days. And she said at the trial, actually, something like everybody believes what we believe, but they're just afraid to say it. And, and that, of course, was entirely not true, right? And so, but I think people like to maybe think that, and there's more schools named for the Scholes, and I think in Germany now than any anybody else. They're not well known outside. And then I almost wrote my thesis on this um, in college, but I didn't know German. So I wrote it on Alexander the Great. And but I always remembered the story. And then on the 75th anniversary of their execution, I wrote an op-ed, which was like a history piece for the New York Times. And it went completely viral. I mean, it was shared tens of thousands of times and was uh, trended to the top of, of their, their articles. And there was I, I looked at a lot of the commentary and it was remarkably because you know, this was shared all over the internet. I, you know, and there's a lot of dark stuff. I've written about finance and I get anti-Semitism, but there was not one Nazi comment, which was pretty remarkable. It was came out right around the time of the Parkland shooting. So a lot of people were drawing a parallel with, you know, child activists. And so I started writing a series of these for the journal and the times and the daily beast and the LA times. And I had the same reaction every time, like they would go, you know, I had one that went to number two on Reddit about the King of Morocco and again, never anything negative or Nazi, you know, even on the internet. And that's been true since the book came out. The only time I've received anything was when the head of the ADL tweeted about the book and he just automatically gets stuff. But there's something about these stories that I think people find really inspirational and, and really, you know, which has, you know, been lacking. And, you know, these are some of the most heroic people, I think, in the history of the world and they're very unknown for a variety of reasons but um you know partly because we tend to focus on 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 evil more than than good so that was the so then i you know i i decided to turn them into this book and you know kind of you know partly to think about what what we can learn from this but partly just as a tribute to them because you know they've never gotten their due and i think we you know people who are jewish in particular but 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 i think anybody who's a person of goodwill, we kind of owe it to them to 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 know their stories, and it's sort of a you know a historical injustice that everyone knows who like Himmler and Goering are, but nobody knows who like Aristides D'Souza Mendes is, even though he's like there are hundreds of thousands of people alive today because of him. Wow, that was like the most striking part of Schindler's List was all the people who were alive because of the people that he saved. Do you remember that when like all of them came out at the yeah. end? And I've I've had this experience which is really powerful, where where not only will I people email me and say, I'm alive because of this person. But I've had so many people that I know, like friends or, or acquaintances who will email me and tell me that I had no idea. You know, hmm. so it's just, 
you know, when they say one, you know, the famous line, one, you save one life, you save the world. I mean, that's part of what it is, right? Is like every generation, there's more and more people who are alive. So I think there's probably, there could be like a million people alive just from the 10 stories in my book today. Wow. And as you point out in the book, there are many more people who tried, but then ultimately weren't successful. Yep. Yep. Just their stories should be told as well. But yep. and many of them we don't know and we'll never, we'll right. never know. So I mean, the effect is like, you know, 27,000 people have been recognized as righteous, which sounds like a lot, but it was super rare. And, yeah. you know, if you fill up Madison Square Garden with a representative population of Europe at the time, you'd have one person who was a righteous. So it's remarkable. So what, when you analyzed all of the righteous, what differentiated them from people who were not heroes? Why these people? Was it something temperamental? Was it, what it, What was it? Or do you not know? Well, I have theory, <laughs> which I've talked about and yeah. I will tell you right now. Uh, I mean, let me put aside group rescue because that's like a different thing in the places like Denmark or Albania where you had almost 100% survival rate. But in terms of the, the so after the war, there was a lot of interest in the evil and, and you had the Milgram experiments and the Stanford mm-hmm. experiments and you had a lot of interest also in bystanders and very little interest in rescue and what they call mm-hmm. altruism. There was one study done by Freudians who were also Holocaust survivors, and they the only correlation they could find was that how you were punished as a child correlated whether you were punished in a like crazy, you know, manner versus like a loving manner. But so that's not a very satisfactory answer. But I'll, this is what I concluded, and I'll circle back to that, and it's very relevant for your audience and, and your your podcast. Um, so I think first of all, one thing I noticed is that. There are patterns. So, you know, people, for example, who were in like creative professions uh, or international professions that brought them in contact with other people and peers in other countries or other religions, they they tended to be more rescuers. You know, people who were for sure like religion actually correlated. So one thing that didn't correlate at all, by the way, was education, which I think we're seeing today on campuses. So everybody at the Vonsi conference had a PhD, but religion was probably the single biggest motivator. It didn't have to be, it was, could have, I mean, I have Protestants, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Muslims in my book, but it was people who were interested in religion, not because of, you know, hierarchical or outward displays of piety and much more about like people who really internalized, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself, you know, the parable of the good Samaritan probably saved more Jews than anything else during the Holocaust. But I think ultimately the one thing I found and this is, I think, really relevant to 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 your podcast, is is early childhood and child and and childhood and 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 all, every I'd say almost every rescuer I looked at, not just the ones in the book, but I've looked at like probably thousands of them at this point, had somebody in their life, usually one or both parents, like including the Shoals. In their case, it was the father, who did a couple of things. One is they one is the I got probably more obvious than the other. The the first is that they taught them, you know like you shouldn't be bigoted and you should respect other people and expose them to other people and kind of had this message that we're all, you know, kind of one, one family of humanity. The other thing they did is most of the rescuers actually came out of loving homes. I'm uh, sorry. They also told them like, you have to act. There's a woman in my, in my, in my book, Raina Sendler, who saved 2,500 Jewish children in the Warsaw Ghetto. And her father told her, if you see someone drowning, you have to save them. And he died when she was younger, catching typhus from 
Jews he was treating, poor Jews. He was a doctor. But the other thing is that a lot of them grew up in very loving homes where their like interests were valued, where they were valued. And that's really important for creating self-esteem because if you think about what, being a rescuer, it's always a little crazy. I mean, everybody around you is doing something different. And you're also, in many cases, risking your life or your family's life. And so you really you really have to have a lot of like self-confidence, not only that you're your moral compass is the correct one, but also that you can take action and make a difference. So I think a lot, like more than anything else, everything comes back to your early childhood and the home you grew up in and the values and the way you were treated. And actually, when you look at group rescue, I think it's the same thing. It's a lot of it is, can you create an environment, you know, where the majority of people stand up for what's right and say, this isn't our values. And so that's why like this anti-bullying campaign that people make fun of, I think is actually quite, quite important. And so again, a lot of that starts in schools and it starts with, starts with children. So that, that, that was my conclusion from, and from just from fact pattern recognition and just having gone through so many of these stories, again, it's, um, you know, kind of belief in something higher than yourself, exposure to others and tolerance, and then really like how you were brought up and treated as a child. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, which one of the characters is the one that you just like can't stop thinking about? Like which one do you either identify with or just think is the most amazing or just you have a personal connection to in some way? Well, it's like asking you which is your favorite uh, ch- ch- child. <laughs> The, the 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 diplomat I that'll mentioned. be my next question. Which yeah. is your favorite child? Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're equal. The, um, the well, Aristides just was a Mendez who I mentioned, who was this Portuguese diplomat who saved thirty thousand people. I, the Christian Science Monitor, because again, the book has gone way beyond the Jewish audience. Picked him as called him the breakout star of the book. His is an amazing story. I, I opened the book with his rescue of the people who wrote Curious George because he saved a lot of like very famous people as well as very not famous people. But I think to me, like. The one that I'm most fascinated with probably is Gino Bartoli, who was a Italian cyclist, and he was probably the most famous athlete, certainly in Italy and maybe in Europe at the time. And he won the Tour de France in 1938, 
was a anti-fascist, um, very devout Catholic, and which was really the only other sort of power center in Italy at the time, um, but was sort of, you know, he didn't dedicate his victory to Mussolini, unlike the football team and the Olympians. And so he was on the kind of on the outs, but he was this very famous celebrity. And then he did a couple of things. He hid a family of Jews in his basement and he hid a family of another Jew and a, and a Romani in a bicycle shop during the war. And then he, but uh, then maybe even more like sort of interesting is that because he was this champion cyclist, he was like one of the few people in Italy that had not only the ability to bike like hundreds of miles a day, but also the excuse. So he was, he would be out biking and in his bicycle, he was recruited as a courier or something called the Assisi Underground, which was run by the church in the North. Because after 1943, when we invaded, Italy was partitioned around Rome. And ironically, that's when the Germans came in because the Italians really didn't round up Jews anywhere. They they thought it was kind of crazy what the Germans were doing. But the Germans, when they came in, then the Italian Jews were in mortal peril. And a lot of them were hidden, actually, in convents and monasteries and even in the cloisters. And Assisi was a where I don't think any Jew had ever lived was uh, was a center for this because they would hide them there and then either smuggle them south or they would just stay until the liberation. And people needed false identity papers. That was critical. And so Bartoli was recruited by his the Archbishop of Florence, who was his priest because he was like a celebrity. So, of course, his priest is the Archbishop. And, <laughs> and he was biking all over bringing false identity papers. And, you know, they would stop him. And because he was so famous, it would, call, you know, he'd say, don't touch my bike because it's perfectly calibrated. And people would say, don't touch Bartoli's bike. And then... Um, you know, there's another scene where he showed up at a train station and caused this huge stir because it would be like if LeBron James showed up and then in the background, the partisans moved Jews, you know, from one train to the other. So he was this hero and then he never really told anybody. I mean, there were rumors after the war. He said, I want to be remembered as a cyclist. He confided in his son who, after he died, ultimately wrote a book. And then this family came out from uh, from that he had hidden. And he has this wonderful line, though, because I've seen, like, footage of his 80th birthday party where people asked him, like, about this. And he would always say, I, I don't want to talk about it. It takes away from it. You shouldn't you do good for doing good, not to take credit. And then he said, you know, there's some medals that you win in this life for, like, cycling. And they go in a museum. And then he said, there are other medals you get in the next life, and they're pinned to your soul. Mm. And that was how – and that is a very common – almost universal, spookily universal refrain from rescuers is they all say, I didn't do anything special. I did what anybody normal person would do. I just did the decent thing. And, I, and I, a lot of it is like very sincere. And it's, it goes to your question about like their personality and why they were so rare. So, you know, and then he went back in 1948 and won the Tour de France again. I think he's one of the oldest people to ever, to ever win it. And he, again, he was this national hero in, in Italy. And he lived to like, you know, into his eighties, you know, athlete who chain smoked and <laughs> 50 cups of coffee a day, but never, never, you know, and like a beloved figure, but never, never, you know, did this. And it, a few years ago, they actually had the Giro d'Italia for the first time in outside of Europe. The first three stages were in Israel and he was made an honorary citizen of Israel. Um, so he was just, I find that story so fascinating because again, he was this like such a famous celebrity athlete who then just never told anybody and certainly had a platform if you wanted to have used it. Wow. It's inspiring to know that these people exist. I know you gave some statistic about how it's like, I don't know, one half of one one hundredth of one percent. Like it's hardly anybody, but still yeah. it is immensely inspiring to know that people are good, that there are such good people out there. And you hope that, that those actions are replicated in the craziness of the current environment. 
just have to hope. Yeah, I, I mean, they, for sure, there are some people doing doing that. And uh, I just met actually. I don't know. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Hotel Rwanda. Mm-mm. But so this was a guy who um, was the manager of the hotel in Rwanda, and he saved sixteen hundred people by hiding them. You know, and I just met him, and when I spoke to him, it was like talking to somebody out of the book. I mean, I asked him why you did it, how you did it, and it was like exactly the same mm-hmm. story. So I think these people still exist today. And you don't have to be, I I think you don't like the other thing I learned is, you know, the criteria to be called a righteous among the nation in Israel is very high. I mean, you have to risk your life and you have to, you know, I would testimony, but there are many things people like Primo Levi wrote about a guy when, when he was interned who a laborer named Lorenzo, and he would bring him soup every day. And he said that, you know, this man kept him alive because he felt like somebody cared. And Mm -hmm. so I think like these small, like not everybody is going to be a rescuer. I mean, you know, when you say like, okay, in Poland, like if they caught you rescuing, they would kill you and your family. Like, I mean, I can tell you right now, I wouldn't have done that. There's no way. I mean, it's, you know, there's a spectrum. So I think we have to be careful to judge, but like, you know, these small gestures make a difference also, and they don't give you, you know, the righteous among the nations for bringing somebody soup. But when you look at the testimony of people who survived a lot of these gestures, letting somebody stay in your house for the night, sometimes just smiling at somebody, knowing that they were on the run, and that that's very important. And there was a rescuer in Holland who said, you know, we were the tip of the spear. He was one of the guys on the front lines, but he said, but we allowed us to do it. And this is true. Like why the reason why the further east you went, the worse it got, because the worse the anti-Semitism was. He said everybody around us was sort of quietly sympathetic and looked the other way. Whereas in other countries, people ran to turn in Jews for very small amounts of money or for spite. So I do think, you know, like not everybody has to be a rescuer to make a difference. And the other thing is I, I actually had the really fascinating experience of interviewing a lot of the children of the rescuers. Mm-hmm. And and it was kind of a mixed bag. I mean, I, I had like, you know, Hiram Bingham, who was a diplomat, his kids view him as a saint, but Varian Fry, who was his kind of partner, they called it in the crime of saving humans, that between the two of them, they saved most of the intelligentsia of Europe. I mean, all of the surrealists and Mark Chagall and all the German writers and, and Varian Fry's son thinks he was like a horrendous father. And, you know, even I interviewed, um, there's the, uh, there's a town, in the Protestant town where the parent, the, the pre- pastor and his wife were very famous figures in the nonviolent movement. And I, I interviewed their daughter who's 95. I mean, she was amazing. She's told me like the carpet in my parents' living room was this color, not this color, you know? And so, but uh, she said, you know, and her parents were like these, you know, very famous, they knew Martin Luther King and Gandhi. She said, well, you know, like they were amazing parents. She said, but you know, they didn't, they didn't come to my piano recital, but you know, like I, I, I still, I know why they didn't. Cause they had more important, but it still bothered her when she was not. So like, mm-hmm. It humanizes these people, you know, when you talk to their relatives, because they weren't like all, most of them were not saints. They weren't like people who set out to go save the world. They were people who found themselves in really difficult decisions, you know, like situations and ended up making decisions that most people didn't make, but they were that. So to me, like, I find that actually really inspiring because they were not, you know, they're like everybody else. They're flawed Mm -hmm. and they're human and yet they were extraordinarily heroic and inspiring. And what do you think the secret is to making history really come alive? Because I feel like there's so many accounts of Holocaust stories or stories of survival or whatever. And obviously there's something innately interesting in them. But I feel like you do a particularly good job of of the vibrancy with which you describe everything. So tell me a little bit about that, even from a writing perspective. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's very nice. And the comments on the writing are, are the most meaningful to me because... 
usually with a nonfiction book, people look at the, you know, the substance of it. But I mean, look, first, I tried to pick stories that I thought were really interesting. It were first of all, gave a cross section of what happened, but also were sort of, you know, cinematic in some ways. So like the Bartoli story, or there's another story that takes place in a circus. And, you know, you have this a wonderful Danish story, or you have King Charles's grandmother, who nobody knows saved a family of Jews. So, so the stories themselves are interesting. And I tried to give as much kind of context and background, you know, to what to what was going on at the time. And obviously, it's one of the most dramatic moments in human history. So World War II. And, you know, so in it, it, some ways, it's kind of easy to write about that and make it make it punchy. So that, you know, I but I did put a lot of, you know, my, I'm really grateful to my editor, who took a hatchet to a lot of because I <laughs> unearthed a lot of material. I mean, there's a, the whole story of Barry and Fry is fascinating, because you have all these famous people who, I mean, he single handedly moved the center of the art world from Paris to New York, right? I mean, pretty much. So that, that, that was, um, but I didn't, you know, I, I did want it to be, a, it's a, tra- it's, you know, it's not meant to be an academic. We have a thousand footnotes, but it's, it's, it's meant to be a, you know, a, a general interest, you know, re- read and people have, I'm really gratified. People have, haven't, haven't like, I don't know, enjoyed, haven't, they really liked reading it just as a, as a, as a group of stories. So, you know, the other thing about like rescue, which I, I, I you know, Holocaust is really tough, right? I mean, and, I was on the radio in Arizona and the guy said to me, can you tell our listeners like what the Holocaust was? So there are people. Oh, come on. Yeah. Oh. And I mean, he didn't, he didn't mean it, you know, he knew what it was, but like, yeah. you know, but also like with children, right. I mean, it's really hard, like even middle schoolers, you know, you, you read night and, and this is like a, a hard way to get in. And I think this, like I have a friend who did a documentary on Le Chambon, which is one of my chapters it's a town in France, they're rescued a lot of children. And, he said that the rescuers are in some way like a banister you can hold on to, to, to start thinking about the Holocaust. So I think for a lot of people, like it's really hard when you get into, forget the academic kind of language, but even just like a really intense story of the, it's so horrific what happened. People just turn off. I mean, we're seeing that a little bit now with like the barbarity that happened on October 7th and like what act, like a lot of people like just, they can't even look at it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you know, when you start by looking at sort of these, you know, lights and the, the glimmers of light in a very dark moment, it's a way of starting to talk about it. And then you say, okay, well, why were they rescuing people? Well, because something really bad was happening, right? Or, you know, and it also kind of is a is a way of countering the Holocaust denial because like these people, there would be no rescuers if there wasn't wasn't a Holocaust. But I did spend, thank you for asking, I did spend a lot of time trying to to make the stories come alive and these people come alive and, and, and talk about what, you know, their backgrounds and what motivated them and what, what else there was beyond just this moment when, when they rescued, when they did their rescue, you know, which some, in some cases was over years, but in some cases was like a week in their life. And they had a lot more to them than that. And then sort of looking at the arc of what happened to them after the war, which case would many of them had very sad, sad endings because of what they did. They were in some ways punished so I hope people I, I I hope people like it. I I, I scour the Amazon and comments. <laughs> and so we're we're you know four and a half <laughs> is out of five is good. So oh my goodness, that's funny. Um, very relatable. Anyway, Richard, thank you so much. Thank you for talking about your book. Thank you for all the research and highlighting these inspirational stories and reminding people that sometimes handing someone a, a bowl of soup can change a life. And all these little things add up, and it's worth doing. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.